Good morning, everyone. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, uh, and I am glad to be sharing from the book of Revelation with you this morning. Uh, before we dive in, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you and we praise you for who you are, Lord, that you are good, Lord, that you are faithful from beginning to end. Father, we just ask that uh, this morning you would be faithful to us, Lord, in sending your spirit uh, to open our hearts and our minds to the truth and the hope that's found in your word. Now, Lord, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot earn. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot earn. This is one of the more famous quotes among Christians today. And the story of Jim Elliot, uh, the man in whose journal this quote was found, is one that many of you may be familiar with. In case you're not, uh, Jim Elliot was a missionary in Ecuador in the 1950s. Uh, he and his wife and four other missionaries went down and uh, were doing mission work. And while they were there, they found out about this remote and small yet fierce people group, uh, and they tried to make contact with them uh, for the sake of the gospel. They did that by flying over uh, in their plane and dropping gifts down and shouting from a, large, a loudspeaker, uh, and eventually even landing for short face-to-face -face interactions. Uh, at one point, they landed and uh, had begun to communicate with uh, the people, and two men came up to them and indicated that they wanted to go up in the plane uh, for a flight so they could see uh, what they saw when they were in the sky. Well, they pretended to be interested, and instead, uh, they actually weren't, but they uh, ended up killing all five of those missionaries. Uh, it later came out that uh, Jim and his companions had guns with them when they were killed by this tribe with spears. They chose to lay down their lives for the sake of this people group. Elliot, Jim Elliot left uh, a wife of three years and a 10-month-old daughter behind. Why? What drives ordinary people to live their lives so radically for the gospel? That's a question I want you to keep in mind this morning as we look at our text. Tomorrow is obviously New Year's Eve, and there's something unique, right, about the freshness of a new year. As a society, we love to make resolutions, things like get healthy or manage your money better or read my Bible more. All of those things are great to make a priority. Uh, in fact, if you've been away from your email this weekend, uh, you should check that. Uh, an email was sent out yesterday by Pastor Dan uh, that has a proposed reading plan for you for the next year. It's a five-by-five-by-five by five by five plan. So five minutes a day, five days a week, and five questions listed there to help you dig deeper. So check that out uh, and resolve to read through at least the New Testament uh, over the course of the next year. If you want more, there's other options there. Unfortunately, though, uh, most New Year's resolutions are broken by February. According to U.S. News, 80% of all resolutions are dead by the second month of the year. That's pretty bleak, right? Well, I want to uh, look at our text this morning, and my prayer is that the hope found in it will encourage us to shift our perspective not just on the next month or the next year, but it will cause us uh, to change the way we approach our day-to-day -day interactions with our coworkers our kids, our spouses, for the rest of our lives. That it would challenge us to wonder if God might be calling us into missions or to pursue some other ministry field or to give up our current comfortable situation to follow his lead into something else. In short, I want to challenge us to live in light of the end of the story. 
Before we get to the end of the story, though, we need to talk about the rest of it. And I cover a lot of this material in uh, more detail in a class called The Story of the Whole Bible. I'll be teaching that uh, later in April. So if you're interested in more, if this piques your interest at all, uh, you can check that class out. But Scripture, as you know, from beginning to end is a cohesive narrative. It's made up of 66 books with different types of literature and varying genres, but they all fit together to tell a story. I like to think of that story in basically four parts. First, we have creation. The story starts out in the garden. God has created man, Adam and Eve, and it's all good. It's all as it should be. Man is walking with God in the garden. There's physical presence. There's no sin or shame or pain or suffering. Everything is as it should be. Then we come to the fall. Pretty quickly in the story, something bad happens. Man disobeys God and eats from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Sin has entered the world, and as a result, the perfect goodness and pure relationships that existed between God and man and man and man are gone. We feel the weight of this today, right? You could open up your Old Testament, and I would encourage you to do that, and read through it and see all the ways that sin taints the relationship between God and man. We could look at story after story when this is really rough on people throughout biblical history. You could do that, Or you could just look at the world we live in today. You could look on a global scale, or you could look on a national scale, but I don't think many of us need to even look outside of ourselves and our own relationships to see the brokenness that sin has brought in. Whether it's the way we struggle with sin, or the way we catch ourselves treating our spouses, or children, or friends, or coworkers, there's brokenness in that. There's brokenness in the pain that we feel at Christmas and in this season over the loss of loved ones. Maybe it's the shame that we feel over past sin, the difficulty we have forgiving that family member who hurt us or wronged us in some way. There's brokenness everywhere we look, and it's all the result of the fall of sin entering the world through Adam. But through all of that, God had a plan, a plan we call redemption. This plan of redemption is where he sent Jesus to be what Adam could not and to do what Adam could not. And we read in Romans chapter 3 that apart from the law, apart from anything we, are, we do, we are made right with God. See, Christ bore the penalty for our sin and the consequences for our sin were placed on him. And now, Scripture tells us, for those who believe in him, there is no condemnation. There is only freedom and grace and mercy. If you've been paying attention, you know there's a fourth part to the story, but I think that this is where we way too often stop as Christians. When we're talking about the gospel, we get this far. We remind ourselves that things were created good, but now they're not the way that they're supposed to be, right, because of the fall. But God did something, and now we're forgiven for our sins, When we share our faith with people around us, we talk about that. We talk about how we've been forgiven from sin, and maybe we talk about how our lives have been changed. But then we stop, and we don't take it to the end. Well, friends, when we stop at redemption, we stop so short of the end of the story, and we leave out some of the best parts. We miss out on the full gospel and miss out on something that's critical for how we live our lives. So what's so great at the end of the story that would cause people to give up money and time with family and even their lives to bring the gospel to the nations? The fourth part of the story is called new creation. Would you open your Bibles with me to the text that we read, Revelation chapter 21? 
If you're not there, that's on page 1103 in the Worship Center Bible. If you go all the way to the back and then flip back three or four pages, you'll find it. Otherwise, I'm in the Christian Standard Bible if you're doing that um, digitally. Revelation chapter 21. Well, in our text this morning, we're going to see four things that God will do at the end of the story that should impact how we view our fleeting time here on earth. First, we'll see that God is making a new heaven and a new earth. Then we'll see that God will dwell with his people. Next, we'll see that God is making all things new. And finally, we'll see that God will bring justice. Let's look back at verses 1 and 2, where we see that God is making a new heaven and a new earth. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. God's restoration of the brokenness around us begins with bringing a new heaven and a new earth. Sometimes, now I think we have a view of the end times that is kind of boring, right? We're sitting up in this place called heaven, and it's probably like a cloud floor and some cloud walls around us, and uh, we're surrounded by these like gleaming white angels that look kind of like humans with wings, and they're strumming on their harps, right? And uh, we sing throughout all of eternity, and that's kind of all we do, and if we're honest, we think that sounds kind of boring, right? Sorry, worship people, but... uh, That's what it is. Uh, Well, pop culture throughout history has not done us any favors in thinking about what our future hope looks like because I don't think that's the picture that we get at all. John tells us here that God is making a new heaven and a new earth. And we don't have much by way of physical description of this new place except, he says, the sea will be no more. And most scholars agree that this just means that there will no longer be any sin or evil. The seas and waters throughout Scripture and the ancient Near East are often used as a picture of chaos and conflict. And chaos and conflict will reign no more. Instead, God will make a new heaven and a new earth with a capital that is prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. What that totally looks like, how that plays out, is sort of unclear, but basically uh, there are two schools of thought. One is that the current earth Uh, will be totally destroyed, and God will make something that's totally new uh, in a new act of creation. And the other uh, side of that is people think maybe uh, God will just renovate what we have here, and it will be uh, all good again. We don't know what form or how that's going to play out, but we can be sure that this new heaven and new earth will be wondrous beyond our wildest imagination. The world we live in today is magnificent, right? There's no shortage of documentaries out there that you can watch so you can see nature and you can see places of the world that you'll never be able to travel to. Or you can just go out in the woods and go for a hike in beautiful Wisconsin and see God's majesty painted throughout creation. When you do that, you can then realize two things. First, Everything we see here, all the beauty and all the goodness, it's as though we are seeing things through a mirror dimly. Second, uh, much of our earth is totally unexplored and we have no idea the wonders that exist. Scientists estimate that as much as 99% of our ocean floors are unexplored and as much as 95% of the rest of the ocean as well. Oceans cover approximately 70% of the surface of the earth. In other words, there's a whole lot of creation that we haven't even explored at all, and it's all declaring God's glory. Now, John tells us that God is creating something new, something totally untouched by sin. 
how much more magnificent will that be than what we experience today? I don't think we're going to be bored in this new heaven and earth, day after day, seeing God's creative handiwork all around us. I imagine there will be enough things for us to discover in this new heaven and new earth that it will last a literal eternity. The best things in this life, the best music, the best technology, the best architecture, the most beautiful landscape or coolest animals you've ever seen will pale in comparison to what's coming. Not only will it be physically beautiful, but everything in new creation will carry out God's purposes exactly as it should. If you remember the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, you'll remember that that took place just outside God's holy city, Jerusalem, a city that's mentioned in our text this morning. Jerusalem did not carry out her purpose to be a light to the nations as she should have. Instead, it apostatized and Jesus was crucified just outside its gates. Now, in Revelation 21, it has returned once more as the holy city. That city on a hill meant to proclaim good news to the nations, and she'll be adorned, it says, as a bride for her husband. God's sanctuary will be reestablished as it was meant to be, and the rest of new creation will follow in this order of purpose. The second thing God is doing is dwelling with his people. Let's look again at verses 3 and 4. It says, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God is dwelling with humanity, and he will live with—God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. Verses 3 and 4 are arguably the most powerful and important uh, in this whole passage. So, if I've lost you already and you've zoned out, uh, come back for just a few minutes, and then if you want to zone out uh, after we're done with this, I'll never know anyway, so you can go ahead and do that. Uh, John is now told in these verses that God's dwelling will again be with humanity. That word dwelling here is probably better translated tabernacle. God's tabernacle is with humanity. Humanity. If you remember back in the Old Testament, uh, the tabernacle was a highly significant tent-like structure in which God dwelled among his people. Think of it as like a circus tent, uh, that size, about the third, uh, one-third of a football field, rather than a small camping tent. Sometimes it was called the tent of meeting, and this was a place where the ark was placed, where sacrifices were made, where the Holy of Holies, you may have heard of that, that's where that was. It was critical to the life of the Israelites, and God's presence was found in this tabernacle. Well, we get a sense of this idea of God dwelling or residing or tabernacling with his people all throughout Scripture, right? In the garden, uh, we see that God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. God and Adam and Eve interacted with each other. They spoke to each other. They had a relationship, and there was a real physical presence. After Adam and Eve sinned and were kicked out of the garden, that relationship changed. Sin stained what was once unblemished, but God still loved his people, and so he continued to reside with them in different ways. We see the Spirit of God coming upon men in the Old Testament, men like David and Saul and the judges and the prophets, in order to give them special power to carry out God's work. God gave the Israelites in Exodus chapter 40 very specific instruction as to how to build this place called the tabernacle that he would dwell with, uh, dwell in the midst of his people. As we move to the New Testament, we see that followers of Jesus are, dwell, are indwelled by the Holy Spirit at conversion. 
Uh, Some people in the New Testament were fortunate enough to literally walk with God in the person of Jesus for the few years that he was on earth, but for the rest of human history, we haven't had that privilege of being physically with God. There's something about being physically present that makes a relationship different, right? If you've ever been in a long-distance relationship or spent a night or two away from your spouse, or maybe you've gone off to college for the first time, or you remember when you were a kid, that first time that you spent the night away from home, even though your parents or significant other or brother or sister, whoever, was just a phone call away, it's not the same. Your heart longs for more. I think sometimes we feel like God is far away, right? Like we know he's out there, but we can't quite feel him or experience him like we want to. Well, eternity will not be tainted by that feeling. Instead, eternity will be characterized by God's nearness to us, his people. I don't mean this in any way to be a knock on the power of the Spirit or his presence in our lives. In fact, uh, Jesus told us in what I think is one of the harder texts to believe in the New Testament, that it's actually better that Jesus left so that he could send his helper, the Spirit, upon us. But there's something different, right, about God being fully present here. Our hearts long for it. And maybe you've never thought about it in those terms, but I think when we have a desire for God's kingdom traits to reign where we are, what we're really longing for is for God to be present with us. It says, he will be their God and they will be his peoples. Those who are left here, whose names are written as we read in the book of life, that is, those who have surrendered to Christ Jesus, those who are left, they will all be God's people. I think there's hope and freedom found in that, right? We've all felt this tension of living and existing in a place where people don't have the same faith we do, or the same values we do, or the same perspective on life we do. Maybe you're in a relationship with someone where you're feeling that tension right now. Maybe it's in your marriage or uh, with your kids or with a coworker or uh, another family member. We live in tension all the time and we always feel it to some degree, right? When God comes to dwell with his people, that tension will be no more. Every single person left will belong to the Lord. We'll worship together. We will exist in perfect harmony with one another and with God. Verse 4 goes on to expand upon the benefits of having God dwell with his people in their presence, right? Just as no unclean or sinful thing could be in God's presence while he was literally tabernacling with Israel, so no unclean thing will be in his presence uh, when he's with us. If you remember to the Old Testament, you, you may remember the story of the ark and of a man named Uzzah. And they were going through the wilderness and the ark was being carried and oxen stumbled and the ark started to fall. And the ark, of course, contained not God's presence. And so Uzzah reached out so that it wouldn't fall into the sand and he was struck dead for touching the ark. He had good intentions, but he was a sinful and unclean human. And so he was struck dead. God will be that holy when he dwells with us. No sinful or unclean thing will be in his presence when he dwells with his people. That might sound terrifying, right? Because you know yourself, and you know your heart, and I know myself, and I know my heart, and so uh, in some ways it does sound terrifying. But for the one who is in Christ, it is only good because of the work of Christ on our behalf on the cross. It might sound scary that sin can't be in God's presence, 
presence. But as a result of that, when God dwells with us in the future, there will be no more tears, no more death, no more grief, crying, or pain, because all of those things have passed away. Each of the things listed in verse 4 are the result of brokenness and sin entering the world when Adam first sinned all the way back in the garden. The world is not as it should be. The pain we feel when we lose loved ones should not have been. The way we hurt each other and the suffering that exists should not be. The world does not exist as it ought to. But one day, it will. When God resides with his people, all will be right. All will be well, and all will be good again. One commentator said it like this. He says, None less than God will be the consoler of his people. He will wipe away every tear. His concern is infinite. And so, Christian, hold on to that hope. The hope that God's concern for you is infinite. That things will not always be the way they are. That one day, soon, they will be incomprehensibly better. Well, God is making, it says, a new heaven and a new earth. God is dwelling with his people. And now in verses 5 and 6, we see that God is making all things new. I want to read uh, this next section to you out of the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, I can't recommend this resource to you enough. Uh, I did a 96-credit-hour master's degree, and as I read through this with my two-year-old daughter, uh, I learned a ton. So if you don't have this resource, the Jesus Storybook Bible, written by Sally Lloyd-Jones, I would highly encourage you to check it out, young or old. uh, There's no shame in reading a children's book. So uh, check that out. I'm going to read this section from Revelation to you uh, from this book. It says, I see a sparkling city shimmering in the sky, glittering, glowing, coming down from heaven and from the sky. Heaven is coming down to earth. God's city is beautiful. Walls of topaz, jasper, sapphire, wide streets paved with gold, gleaming pearl gates that are never locked shut. Where is the sun? Where is the moon? They aren't needed anymore. God is all the light people need. No more darkness, no more night. And the king says, look, God and his children are together again. No more running away or hiding. No more crying or being lonely or afraid. No more being sick or dying. Because all those things are gone. Yes, they're gone forever. Everything sad has come untrue. And see, I have wiped away every tear from every eye. And then a deep, beautiful voice that sounded like thunder in the sky says, look, I am making everything new. The one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. Out of the mouth of God himself, that king who is seated on the throne and reigning for all eternity, he says, I am making all things new. And then he has to remind John what he's doing. John, write this down. These words are faithful and true. God himself promises us that he is making all things new. The promise that God is making here is really the culmination of the whole book of Revelation and of the whole story that's weaved through Scripture and human history. This isn't something that God only does at the end of time, but something that he's begun to do that we have a foretaste of already in our hearts as he's doing that in our lives for those who are Christ followers. Commentator commentator J.R. Michaels says this, He says, a similar conviction lies at the root of Paul's bold affirmation in 2 Corinthians that if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. He goes on and says, it's not a huge step to conclude that a God who remakes individuals 
is at work remaking the world as well. In the mind of God, if not yet in human experience, it is done. He says, a God who remakes individuals is at work remaking the world as well. In the mind of God, if not yet in human experience, it is done. We all long for the hope that Revelation 21 offers, right? We see brokenness and pain, and we feel sadness and conflict. And the idea that things would be totally right and good is so alluring that sometimes it seems too good to be true, right? We have a, we have a hard time comprehending what that would be like. And yet, God himself says, it is done. I am the beginning and the end. The story is written, and guess what? God wins. Death does not reign anymore. Satan is cast into the pit. All things are made new. He goes on in verse 6. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. This promise from God draws upon several sayings of Jesus. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Wrapped up in verse 6 is this invitation that Jesus so often made to come and drink from the spring of the water of life. I love that God stoops down to our level and gives us something that we can tangibly relate to. Thirst. To the thirsty, he says, I will give freely from the spring of the water of life. I want you to uh, imagine with me for a second that it's not 20 degrees or whatever outside. There's no snow on the ground. But instead, it's a a hot summer day, late in the summer. You're outside. Uh, Maybe you're working, right? You're cutting wood for your furnace for the winter. Or maybe uh, it's a flashback to a summer where you spent some time working on a farm. Or maybe uh, you played sports in high school, and it's one of those early practices where you're outside and you're running, and it hits you that you're not quite in mid-season shape yet. You've been working for a while. You're soaked in sweat. Your mouth feels dry, and and your spit is sticky, right? You feel that as you try to swallow. You make your way over to the cooler that's filled with ice and water, and you pull out this ice-cold water bottle, and you take it down in two big drinks. Nothing has ever been as refreshing as this drink of water. That's what it's like when you come to Jesus. When you're set free from your sin and shame and guilt and become a new creation, you're covered by his righteousness and you no longer stand guilty before the Father. It's like a drink of water. Your relationship is restored and this hope, this hope of being reunited with God at the end where all things are made new, where God dwells with his people in the new heaven and the new earth, this hope becomes yours. And when we get there, when God calls us home, we will drink from the cleanest, purest, most refreshing spring that we have ever tasted. That cool drink that you just took from your water bottle will be like mud when it compares to the glory of being in the presence of Jesus for all eternity. Are you here this morning and you're feeling that thirst for the first time? Or maybe you've uh, felt that thirst for a while in your life and you're finally ready to take a drink. 
I want to encourage you, if that's you, if you're here this morning and you're ready to talk more about Jesus, that you talk to someone. Talk to the person that brought you here. Talk to uh, one of our staff or elders or come find me in the foyer. I would love to talk to you about what it's like to drink of the resurrection of Jesus. I would love to talk to you about how you can have that thirst in your soul quenched by him. There's one final thing that God will do that should impact how we view our time here. God will bring justice. Let's look back at verses 7 and 8. It says, The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The one who conquers will inherit these things, John says. Well, there's only one who is conquered, God's own son, Jesus Christ. He's the only one. But as we worked through our story, creation, fall, and redemption, we saw that in Romans 3 that Christ conquered on our behalf. And if we surrender to him, we are made holy and clean by his work, not on our own. And so if we are in Christ Jesus, actually only if we are in Christ Jesus, we'll be counted among those who have conquered who will inherit the things that we've read about thus far. And now, God will not just dwell with us and be our God. It says that we will be God's children, his sons and his daughters for eternity. But then verse 8 takes quite the turn, right? Justice, it says, will finally, fully be done. This is really good news for some and really terrible news for others. We just read that cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, the second death. A lot of people can get hung up on this. Maybe you're in, uh, even in this room, and you want to reject God because of how harsh this punishment is. I could never believe in a God who sends people to hell, is usually how that thought process goes. I can understand that a punishment this drastic can be, tough to comes, can be tough to come to terms with, right? If you're not found in Christ at the end, you will endure eternal conscious punishment. If you cling to anything but Jesus, be it one of the sins listed here or something else that's found in Scripture, you will be found guilty in the end. That can be tough to handle, right? But I have a few thoughts about that. First, uh, this is what Scripture teaches, and so we can't shy away from it. Sometimes truth uh, in Scripture and in life can be hard to swallow, and Scripture says that this is the case, and so we press in. Second, God gives every opportunity to repent and turn to Christ. Even in this section, he calls people to drink from the spring of the water of life. And third, if we dig a little deeper, I think we see God's goodness shining through in his justice. Do you really want to worship a God who for eternity lets evil run rampant? Who lets murderers and liars and those who abuse children and prey on the weak and defenseless never repent and get off free? A holy God requires holiness, and I think there's a piece of that in every believer, and I think a piece in every person that longs for justice to reign. And so, for believers, the day of justice is good news. It's good news only because of the work of Christ on the cross on our behalf, 
but it is good news. We'll finally see the world as it was intended, without any tinge of wickedness. But for those found outside of Christ, it will be a day and an eternity of terror. So again, if you're here this morning and you have not yet decided to follow Jesus, but you're thinking about it, make today the day. Don't wait another minute, because once your life ends, you won't have another chance. I began this morning with a story about some missionaries who gave their lives for their faith. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot earn. What causes people to live their lives so radically for Jesus? I think they soak deep in texts like these. They know that a better day is coming. A day when there is a new heaven and earth, when God dwells with his people, when he makes all things new, and when he brings justice to the world. And so, as we begin 2019 with a fresh start, let's have a fresh look at the hope that Jesus offers. Not just a hope of forgiveness of sins, but a hope of being saved into God's perfect new creation. So as you're making your resolutions or evaluating the last year of your life or just reflecting on Scripture, work at having a new perspective. Ask the Spirit to give you a new outlook, one where this isn't the end, where the story continues, where we will spend an eternity with our Lord when everything sad has come untrue and everything is made new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for the hope that's found in this section in Revelation. Father, you are good, and we know that you are making all things new, Lord, and starting with us, Lord, in our hearts and transforming us. And so would you help us to cling to the hope, Lord, that one, thing, one day things will be as they should. Father, I just pray that if anyone's here under my voice this morning who is uh, wrestling with you, who is thinking about following after Jesus and surrendering, Lord, would you just send their spirit to convict and to encourage, Lord, and give opportunity for conversation this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.